So today we continue our study through the book of Ephesians, and last week we began to scratch the surface on this high calling of the unity of the church. This high calling, the calling that with which you were called is to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. That is a very high calling, and it, it's a high calling because it glorifies the Lord, and that's what we're all about. As we've been studying through, learning of the purpose of the church and the calling of the church, the mystery that is the church, and, and, and that the church is part of the workmanship of God. And, and today now we... We, uh, as we get into this and we're reminded of the unity of the church, that the unity of the church is essential, that the enemy is battling against the unity of the church. So when there's division in the church, we could be sure of whose fingerprints are on it. And that unity has already been accomplished in Christ. Now our responsibility is to maintain it. Uh, so this week we look further into the description of this unity, and specifically we're going to get into some of the doctrines even, uh, and, and some of the essential doctrines, and some of these doctrines that have caused a bit of division, and not just doctrines, but even philosophy and ministry, and just views on certain things within Scripture. And as Paul writes it, uh, he says, there is one body. He, he says it as a matter of fact. There is. He doesn't say there might be. Or there could be. Or you might accomplish this. No, he says it has been established. As we talked about last week, the unity has been established in Christ, by the blood of Christ. And now in that unity, there is, not there might be, there could be one day. No, there is one body, one church. The body of Christ, a matter-of-fact statement. And that matter-of-fact statement reminds us of the matter-of-fact blood of Christ and the work of the cross. We go, we go back to the matter-of-facts. Jesus died on the cross and by his blood has made a way for the church to be one. That's a matter-of-fact. That's not an opinion. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. It actually happened. And so we're reminded of that matter of fact, and we're reminded of the unity that has been established by the blood of Christ. So we take a look now at this unity that's been established. There is one body. There's seven different things that we're going to look at here today of what has been established, of the oneness of the body of Christ. The first is there is one body. And we can look at the church today, and we can see that it, it seems to be very torn and divided. There's many different denominations within the church, and there's many different uh, ideologies and views on, on scriptures, and there's many different philosophies of ministry, and there's, there's so many differences altogether, different styles of teaching and preaching and worship and, and different styles of leadership and, and the way that the church operates, right? And, and, and Paul, in this day, is not seeing so much of that go on, but this is no doubt inspired 
by the Lord, right? The inspired word of God. And so the, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's alive today as much as it was when Paul wrote these words to the church of Ephesus. These are words for us today. We've established that. We've talked much about it as we've been studying in Ephesians. But these are words for us today. And Paul, whether he, he saw it in the future or not, He's speaking, he's giving this statement that is so much about the future of the church. Now, what he would be seeing in his day is this division uh, between Jews and Gentiles in the church and beginning to see differences in philosophy of ministry or beginning to see differences in theology. But no matter what, in the midst of all of these differences, and you know what, just plain issues, we talked about that last week, with all the, the division in the church, the disunity among the church, there's issues between people. Paul recognizes that but says, you know what, regardless, there is one body because there's one Savior, Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ, and we are marked by Christ, and that alone. We don't have to be the church of, or the body of anything else. We're marked by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. So what this tells us, this one body is accomplished through salvation, that one body that we are marked by Christ is about relationship with Jesus Christ. We so often fix our eyes on the differences. We fix our eyes on the differences of the people around us just in our church. We fix our eyes on the differences of other churches and we have competitions of sorts. You know, somebody will come and, oh, you know, so-and-so, they're going to that church. I'm like, praise the Lord. If that's the, the family that they've gotten connected to, the church they've gotten connected to, amen. If Christ is preached, as Paul says, I will rejoice. If people are being impacted by the gospel, if people's lives are being changed by the word of God, then amen. We may not see eye to eye on every single doctrine But Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the head of the church. We see disunity, and we even sometimes create it, and we walk in it, right? But that's what we see when we look around the church. What does God see? And this is what Paul is trying to bring the attention to. There is one body. There's not many he brings that attention, that focus back. This is what God sees. This is the church that he has established. And that is God sees men and women and boys and girls. That's it, by the way. There's only two of these genders, okay? This is what God sees. That was, for, that was a bonus for today. Uh, <laughs> That's what God sees, and it's men and women, boys and girls, who are born again, bought with the blood of Christ, who trust in Jesus for salvation. That's what God sees. That's what he has established in his church. You know what that's all about? Life in Christ. 
And that life in Christ should be celebrated. Life in Christ is what it takes to be part of the body of Christ, the one body. And so then we continue. There's one body, there's one spirit. Life in Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can walk with Jesus. We can look like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, uh, try on your own, okay? Try to have patience, all right? Yeah, I, I went right to patience. You know, that's the one that it gets me constantly. I think it gets all of us. Try to have patience without the Holy Spirit. That's a dangerous thought. But life in Christ is fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works greatly in the church to maintain unity. Why? Because it glorifies God. You see, there's a beautiful cycle of the work of the Spirit in the church that is maintaining unity. And you know what? It's a constant battle, isn't it? It's a constant battle to maintain unity among people and all the issues that we have with each other. It's a constant battle to maintain unity among churches. Listen, this was the vision. Last year, we started this Connect Conference. You heard Mark mention it even this morning on accident. But hey, maybe there was no accident in that. He mentioned it. The Connect Conference is all about fixing our eyes on Jesus and inviting churches from all over this tri-state area to come together under the one banner that is Jesus Christ. Not the banner of Cornerstone, not the banner of Calvary Chapel or any of the, the great men and women of faith who've gone before. Under the banner of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is working very hard to maintain that unity. We have to tap into that. And how does the Spirit do this? Well, one, the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin. When we see the Spirit of God working, we see sin being revealed. We see confession of sin because people are convicted. Man, I need to change. Amen. And we see the Holy Spirit enlightening people, going deeper in their relationship with the Lord, taking steps of faith, walking by faith. We, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that fills us, that seals us, that anoints us. There's great work going on to maintain the unity of the church, the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, if you're taking notes, it says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is not in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit that brings life, it only brings life. The Holy Spirit that brings life in Christ that's all that what we're talking about. It distinguishes a genuine believer from someone who would say that they, they're just claiming to be in the church. 
There are many people in the world that just go to church. Maybe some of you in this room, you just go to church. But you've not experienced life in Christ and not been empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We can't do this without the Holy Spirit. We will not look like Christ if we don't have the Holy Spirit. There is only one spirit that brings life. It's the Holy Spirit. And Paul was given this great wisdom to speak into the church for the future, like I said before. Because of the differences in doctrine that would grow, and, and, but there's, there's such an important common ground. And that common ground is Jesus. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there are many different views on the work and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? And you've heard some of these things. For the, we're not, we don't have time to go into all of these different ideas, views, doctrines. But there is an agreement. As Paul says, there is one body. There is one spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to abide with us forever. That's what Jesus said. And the church, the one body, can all be agreed on that one thing. The Holy Spirit was given to abide with us forever, to be a helper. That's what Jesus said, John chapter 14. We continue then, there's one hope of your calling. Titus chapter two, verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's like levels in our own finite minds of what hope is. Like I could say, I hope that the weather clears up and it's not, doesn't feel like it's 100 degrees today. You know, I hope that that happens. That's empty. That's not real hope. It's most likely gonna be super humid and hot and feel like it's 100 degrees today. All right, fine, I'll deal with it. That's not real hope. And that's, and that's trying to put hope into our earthly understanding. But there's greater hope. As believers in Jesus Christ, we sang that song, Jesus Christ, our living hope. So because Jesus is alive, hope is alive, and, and we are going to see him face to face. We're going to heaven. That is our hope. Amen? but only as believers in Jesus Christ. This is a letter written to the church. So the church, we have that hope in common. We will see Jesus. As believers in Jesus, we will see him face to face. But further, there's even more, right? We've got three levels today. This blessed hope, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. What are we talking about? The second coming of Christ. Now, you probably know this by now. There's a lot of different views on the second coming of Christ. There's a lot of different ideas of when will it happen? Will it be a you know, pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, post-tribulational rapture, or post or pre-millennial, or all the different 
there's all these titles of sorts, right, within this doctrine of, of the end times, right? The eschatology, the study of end times events. And, but here's the thing. Regardless, now for us, I'll say this simply, again, we don't have time to get into all of the different ideas. We'll get into that another day when we're studying through Revelation or Daniel or something along those lines, right? But for us as a church, we believe in pre-tribulational rapture of the church, that Christ is coming for the church, followed by a seven-year tribulation where the wrath of God and judgment of God will be poured out on the world. That's what we believe. But regardless of the different ideas, the different viewpoints, the church, those who share life in Christ, established in one body, the church agrees. There is one hope. Jesus is coming again. Period. When, how, what it's going to look like, you know what, we don't really know. There's different ideas, there's different viewpoints, there's different beliefs, but the church agrees that Jesus is coming again. That's the one hope. We agree we're going to see Jesus face to face. We agree that Jesus is coming back. And you know what, guys, without that one hope, all of this is really upsetting. This whole life that we're living is absolutely miserable without hope. Further, we go to verse 5 now as it says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord. As believers, we agree. As the church We agree, Jesus is Lord. Jesus must be the Lord of our lives and recognized as the Savior of the world, recognized as the Messiah. And this speaking of this one Lord is a confession of faith to say, Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a confession. One Lord is to say, amen, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is my Lord. He's the Lord of my life. This is an expression from the heart that Jesus is Lord. For those who love him, trust him, obey him, walk with him, Jesus must be Lord. One faith, one faith is speaking of a confidence, an assurance, and that assurance can only be found in Jesus Christ alone. Everybody's looking for assurance of salvation, right? Can I, how do I have assurance of my salvation? Walk with Jesus, and you have assurance. Put your trust in Jesus. Invite him in to be your Lord, and walk with Jesus. Walk by faith, and you have assurance. You see, the problem is so often we want to see how far we can go away from Jesus, 
how far we can walk apart from Jesus in order to maintain our salvation. Make sure that we don't lose it. And that's the question that oftentimes comes up when talking about assurance. This is our assurance. There's one faith. Put your faith in Jesus and walk with Jesus. Walk by faith and you have assurance. The church agrees. Faith in Jesus is essential. Now there's different ideas of faith and what it looks like. And there's the whole idea of a name it, claim it doctrine, right? This faith movement that's like, hey, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You've got to claim it. You've got to believe it. And if you're sick or if you're poor, it's because you don't have enough faith. There's that idea out there. But listen, the church agrees on this. Faith in Jesus is essential. And I say the church, I'm talking about the true church. This is how you can tell if it's the church, the body of Christ. This is how you can tell if it's a a real church. Is there a call to repentance? Is there a call to faith in Jesus Christ? The body of Christ, this one body agrees. Faith in Jesus is essential. And that includes recognizing who Jesus is. That is essential to our faith, that he's the son of God, the perfect spotless lamb. Jesus is a miracle worker, the one foretold by the prophets. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, omnipotent, holy, born of a virgin, triumphant over the curse of sin, full of grace and mercy. Jesus fulfilled the law, satisfied the wrath of God, was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, head of the church, and is coming again. That's who Jesus is. That is what he's done. And that faith is essential. And the true church, the one body, agrees. That faith is essential. We continue on then. It says one baptism. Another topic of debate in the church. In, in various ways. And baptism has been turned into something a, a little bit cheap in a sense. Right? And I'm referring perhaps you know, specifically to baby baptism. And a practice that is not a biblical practice. And Paul wasn't talking about baby baptism. He was talking here about water baptism. And that water baptism is an ultimate outward confession of faith. And in that day, things were not clouded. It was no baby baptisms. There was no other baptisms. There was one. And that's what he's saying. There's one baptism. It was a simple statement for Paul to make. We've muddied the waters a bit over the years, haven't we? And getting into this different idea of baptism in the church across the world. Simply baptism of believers by immersion was the New Testament model. In the early church, that's what we see them practice. So that's what we practice So what is agreed on here? 
This one baptism essentially is the outward expression that separated believers from the world. And the Bible would indicate to us that baptism is not essential for salvation, but it is an expression of salvation. It's here connected with some essentials of there being one Lord and one faith. And so the natural response to your relationship with Jesus Christ, the natural response to confessing that Jesus is Lord, your natural response to having faith in Jesus and walking with Jesus and being, having this assurance in our, in our fellowship with Jesus, the natural response is water baptism. I want to be baptized. And I've talked to pe- many people over the years. They're like, oh, I'm thinking about it. I don't know. You know what I always say? Why not? There's no good reason not to get baptized. Relationship with Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, these are essentials. Baptism is an expression of those things. The outward sign of the inward heart is what we will often say as we have baptisms. And we have a baptism coming up. If you've never been baptized, our church picnic, we're going to have a baptism. Don't miss it. Go for it. Don't wait. Don't debate whether you should or you shouldn't. You should. It's a natural response to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Further, verse 6, we see one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One God and Father. This is speaking of the church being the family of God. What a gift that is. In the church, we have family. And some of you look around this room, you're like, amen. I've got a family here. Some of you look around the room like, I just showed up today for the first time. Hold on a minute. But you know what's beautiful? Regardless of it, this church or believers around the world, we have one father. God is our father. We have that great common ground. That is the church. That is the true body of Christ with God as our Father. We can have that in common. Wherever you go, when you find a believer in Jesus Christ, you're like, amen, we have the same dad. And you can hug each other and embrace and say, we're family. God is our Father, and Jesus actually taught this as he gave the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. He said, our Father who is in heaven. And other times in Scripture, he says, my Father, I'm here about my Father's business, and he connects that very clearly, that he was sent from the Father, and, but he says, our Father, you have the same Father, you have the same opportunity to have fellowship with the Father. He is our Father. He's the Father of all the church. The early church was threatened by division of Jews and Gentiles. And so Paul, as he's writing these words, is saying, 
We have the same Father, Jew and Gentile alike. Again, referencing the racial and and social issues and that those are completely irrelevant because we have one Father and it's God. God is Father of all the church. And Paul, specifically speaking of the fact that God is bringing people from all different backgrounds all different nations, all different languages, and now for us today, all different generations. And is, he's saying, look what God has done and look at what he's doing. He is molding the church. He's making, he, he's creating this workmanship. His beautiful work of art, poema. He's working hard and he is crafting all of these very different people in different times and cultures and generations. And he's making them into his church under God, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have one father. He says then that one father, God, is above all. So God is the supreme authority. This is important that we recognize this, a fact in the church. God is the supreme authority, not the Pope or anyone else. God is the supreme authority. Now, the religiosity of that day in Judaism, the supreme authority oftentimes would be the rabbi in somebody's life, the priest. We've had encounters with people from just south of us here who you're talking to them about things and and they'll say, well, I have to talk to my rabbi about that. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that or not or I don't know if, if that's okay or not. I have to talk to my rabbi. And every rabbi has a different interpretation of the law. And some it's okay. You know, if you, if you sell your house, they got to take out the oven. They gotta put a new stove and oven in, right? I was just talking about this this week with someone. If you sell your house to them, they gotta change it out because it's not kosher. Or they gotta wait seven years. But some rabbis are like, oh, it's okay. Seriously, this is the, that's the reality. They'll be like, no, it's okay. You just get it cleaned up really good. So is, but that's the supreme authority in some people's lives. In that day, that's the idea. In our day, it happens all over. There's supreme authority in people's lives. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's that super spiritual friend that they have. But people put supreme authority all the time in their life above God. But God is above all. There's no person. There's no power. There's no influence. There's no fear other than God, that can rule over the church, the body of Christ. God is the authority. Then he further, he says, it's through all and in you all. God has a perfect plan. Through all, God has a perfect plan. Through all the things that we go through, through all the things that we experience, through all the things that we do to ourselves, God has a plan. It's through all things. He knows what he's doing, 
He knows where he's going and he knows how he will accomplish his purpose. And in you all is that we get to be a part of it. It's through us and it's in us. He's going to do these things in our lives. He's going to work in our lives. We get to experience the goodness of God. We get to experience the, the blessings of God. We, <coughs> we get to have a blessed hope. Looking forward to the day that we see Jesus face to face. That's happening in us. And, and further even giving us the indication that God is in us. We've already talked about the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Jesus, who is, it makes our heart his home. Now we've got God, the Father. There's such an amazing, intimate relationship here with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we rewind to the beginning of Ephesians, where we talked about God, Father, Son, and Spirit, made this perfect plan for redemption before the foundation of the world, and here it is, it's in us, the church. God, the Father, Son, and Spirit is working in us, working out salvation as we walk with him, as we trust in him. He is at home in our hearts. But it's all through relationship. I say that he is in us, he's working through us and in us only through relationship with Jesus Christ. Only through inviting him in to be our Lord. And through walking with him and walking by faith, that's how we become a part of his holy church. Where there's a high calling to maintain the work that he's done, to maintain the unity, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.